Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. And as promised, I do have Andrew Palmquist with me. Andrew will be joining me at least once a month to kind of look back into what we've been talking about, get a sense of where we are at, and maybe, uh, pending where the Holy Spirit leads, where we might be going based upon what we have been dis- uh, what we have been discussing now. Uh, this evening is episode number eight in our series on the book of Exodus. We have made it through uh, chapter three, so this evening we are going to kind of uh, look back into chapter three and discuss the significance of the burning bush. And so, uh, Andrew Palmquist, I, I welcome you into the studio. Thank you, Joe. It's good to be here again. Maybe you can get us started with an initial observation or, or question about chapter three. All right. Well, one of the things that I noticed uh, in talking about the burning bush was just that that God stopped Moses as he was coming closer, and he he told him to take his sandals off. Hmm. And I, I and well, before even that happened, God addresses him by name, which is a, a similar theme that we see through Scripture. Sure, sure. But that my question to you is whether the ground itself was holy, or was it God's presence, or possibly both? And then in today's culture, how do we interpret that holy ground? Does that come with us? through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. If you were to be walking towards someone, and that someone <laughs> said, ah, 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 stop what you're doing mm. <laughs> before you come into this room, take off your sandals for this is holy ground, that would seem different. Mm. Uh, and why do I say that? Well, because God is entirely different. Certainly in antiquity, and, and to some degree today, we have it in cultures where before you enter in to a room, you take off your sandals out of reverence, out of respect. In antiquity, you did this because, well, this is what God asked Moses to do. And I think to your question, what makes the ground holy is God's presence, mm. right? God's presence is in the burning bush, as we have been talking about over the past month. Where God is, all things in his presence are uh, holy. This reminded me of a story. A good Catholic friend of mine, whose name I can't use, <laughs> he was a, a part of a deliverance ministry. Uh, Andrew, a a priest who was involved in exorcisms, asked him to be an intercessor during the exorcism. And he's been doing this now for five years, and he had shared that, you know, in some cases, an exorcism will take. A lot of time, especially if an individual is possessed with a lot of demons. Mm. What's interesting about this story is that this Catholic gentleman who was being asked to be an intercessor knew the individual who was possessed, and he was actually friends with him. So as he tells the story, on one occasion, this individual comes to his house, and they thought it to be a bit strange only in that what had been taking place in recent months with respect to the deliverance ministry. Anyhow, he and his wife went to the door. They opened the door. They said hello to the, uh, to the individual. 
And as the individual tried to go into the house, this individual physically could not enter the house. Something was blocking them. After that happened, the door was shut. He went on his way. This Catholic friend of mine and his wife concluded that he couldn't get into the house because that home has been consecrated to God. Mm-hmm. That home is holy ground, right? This home uh, was made holy because of, well, clearly the way they, they practice their faith. If you think about it, and you see this in sacred scripture, Andrew, consecration is to make or declare sacred. The Latin consecratio is to declare sacred. So when you consecrate your home to God and and all the rooms in your home to God, you are declaring that this space is sacred. The thing of it is, you have to practice the presence of God for for that (laughs) consecration to mean something. And ultimately... It will and does if you do, in fact, devote yourself to God. So, and bringing up the exor- the exorcism and the demonic possession, what what's the role of holy water? Mm. And we talk about holy ground. Yeah. So water is sanctified by a priest. Okay. The the word sanctified comes from the Greek hagiazo. You see Paul use it. So the priest sanctifies water, it becomes holy, and ultimately, now that that Water is holy, it holds within it the power of God as the priest has sanctified the water. Ultimately, it becomes a part of the, the ritual of exorcism. Mm. Uh, oh, by the way, Andrew, and I think this is very important, we were talking about the word covenant before we came on air here. I mean, how do you enter into a covenant but by swearing an oath, mm. right? By swearing an oath. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, and we were talking about it because we were talking about Moses and the, the great covenant of Moses. What's interesting about the word exorcism is it comes from the Greek exorcia, which translates as to oath out, Mm. right? To oath out. So you enter into relationship with God by swearing an oath, and you do so by virtue of sacraments and signs. We have to remember that Satan is what but the father of all lies. Mm. He is the great plagiarizer. And so he plagiarizes signs and symbols he binds people to him through those signs and symbols, uh, literally, in many occults, in, in many satanic rituals, there's a lot of oath-swearing going on. So the priest, uh, by virtue of holy water and, and other instruments, oaths out the curse, if you will. That's the long answer to your question about holy water. I, I did want to make one last comment as it relates to holiness, because I do think this is uh, so important especially when you start talking about Mount Sinai, because Mount Sinai is in many ways set apart. Mount Horeb, this great peak, I think it's over 7,200 feet, mm-hmm. right? This huge peak, uh, what we also know as the Mountain of Moses. Uh, the word holiness means to be set apart. And again, not because you've ascended a mountain per se, but because you've entered into the holiness of God himself. Baptism is the reception of the gift of holiness because it's the gift of God, the, the, the gift of God's very life, his very love. Um, holiness, we could also say, is light. Um, I often receive the question, or maybe the observation better said, Joe, it's, it's getting very dark out there. What are, what are we to do? Uh, mm-hmm. My response is quite simply, be in the light of Christ, because ultimately 
we can be assured that the darker it gets, the brighter our light shines. And that's so important for us to be mindful of. And remembering that uh, that light is the light of holiness. It sets us apart. Uh, I was struck by the fact that Moses turned away from the burning bush, not, mm. not to look upon God's mm. presence. A solemn awe, deep reverence. That is what comes with, of course, the, the taking off the sandals. Something I talked about a few weeks ago is to take off your sandals is also a sign of humility. Uh, it is a sign of vulnerability. Right? And this, of course, is, is the language of salvation and, and redemption, for sure. Before doing the research for today's program, I, I, hadn't, I think I'd had a, an assumption that Sinai was the same location of the burning bush, but I hadn't actually confirmed that until doing just a little bit of reading. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that's an interesting distinction, too, is that the, the holy ground was actually where God was leading his people to so that he could give them the law. Yeah, of course, Mount Horeb literally translates as peat, and it has that name because of the burning bush. And so my other question would be to God's timing and how that the fact that God God seems to lead Moses in successive 40-year periods of his life, and in the, at this time Moses exiled himself from Egypt, and along with him the Hebrew people had to suffer another 40 years yeah. waiting while Moses was shepherding flocks. Yeah, and, and there I think, Andrew, what's important to remember is that in the Bible, the number 40 has to do with probation. It has to do with trial, a testing, all of which, of course, are about purification, you know, from Mount Sinai and Moses' fast to the children of Israel in the wilderness, which you speak to, and they're testing to, of course, our time, uh, our Lord's time of preparation for his own temptation in the desert. Mm-hmm. Now, we see the number 40 as intricately tied to times of purification. And, and why? Well, because, you know, a faith that is not tested, as they say, is a faith that cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. Huh? It, it's fascinating to go into the Old Testament. I think you see the number 40 over 140 times. Uh, the few that come to mind are, of course, in the story of Noah. Rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, interestingly, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse, 20, uh, verse 3, rather, we see that 40 stripes was the maximum number allowed for anyone to be punished. Isn't that interesting? I think that reflects the, the significance of trial and purification. Of course, the prophet Jonah prophesied of the impending destruction of Nineveh if they didn't repent and gave them 40 days to do so, and of course, they eventually did repent, and, and the entire city of Nineveh was spared in that great episode. King Saul, King David, King Solomon all reigned for how many years but 40 years? Mm. It was simply put, its use in Scripture denotes a complete period of time that transitions to another period of time when you begin to read sacred Scripture as the story of salvation history. Even as we speak to uh, the events that I just spoke to, those are great events that occur, and they are also kind of definitive transitions to another great event. So the number 40 is significant there. Also, it comes to my mind, and this wasn't something we talked about before, but the word generation comes from the Greek genoa, mm-hmm. which literally translates 40 years. Okay. We have specific names and titles for generations, and 
whether or not we mean to speak to it explicitly in 40 years, we get a sense that, yeah, generation is roughly 40 years. And incidentally, yeah, it actually means 40 years. Mm. Well, and also, Joe, what, what was brought to my attention in, in reading the Scripture was the fact that Moses was having to wait and ask God the right questions mm. at the right time. And, yeah. and I, I don't bring this up just to point at the Scripture text, but to say in, in our situations today in the lives that we live, sometimes we need to be present in that moment. And when God calls us, we may jump in with both feet, but we also need to ask those questions so that we properly contextualize what it is God's asking us to do rather than maybe getting ahead of ourselves and doing more or less than the calling. Moses asks of God some pretty simple questions. Uh, so he says, who, who, who should I say sent me? Yeah. And he says, who, who am I that, that I should speak to Pharaoh? You know, Moses in his own mind had resolved to live a life in exile, had resolved to live a life wandering in the wilderness as a shepherd. I don't think in his own mind he had seen himself being called back to Egypt. Yeah, it's really a fascinating point that you bring up, Andrew, and thank you for bringing this up. Uh, remember, why did he leave? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he killed an Egyptian. Who am I to go back to Egypt mm-hmm. with this message? This is, uh, on the surface, insanity. Insanity literally meaning without reason, insanum, without logic, without reason. This doesn't make sense to me. So he's asking, I think, a very important question, um, and just not question, but as you raise questions. And, and before I answer that question or questions, I want to go back to something else you said before that, mm. where Moses was realizing... Not, if I'm going to do this right, I have to ask questions. Mm-hmm. He feels the freedom to ask questions. I think this is really important that, you know, sometimes in the spiritual life, Andrew, I think what gets us down, what becomes a weight is that we are not in a living relationship with Jesus Christ where we feel free to ask the kind of questions that we need to ask. And so I think the first point to be had is that Moses feels like he can go to God and ask these questions. Go to God out of, remember what we were just talking about, this deep reverence, this deep awe. Mm. Moses understands what we read later in sacred scripture, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So let me ask you, Lord, how am I to be wise? Mm. (laughs) And I become more wise by asking these questions. So who should I say set me? Who am I that I should speak to Pharaoh? Implied in both is is how Moses can earn the respect of the Hebrew people so so that they would follow him. What's fascinating is when you go through this narrative carefully in the Hebrew, in one particular verse, he speaks to sign in the singular, and then he says, when you return to me upon Mount Sinai, that will be a sign. Mm. Well, it moves to the plural, in the Hebrew at least, Mm. that the worship of the Israelite people will become the great sign. And so I think the first point to be had here is, yes, God will give to Moses signs, all those signs that we familiarize with the great Exodus event. But those signs point to a much deeper sign, the deeper sign of the worship of the chosen people. I don't know about you, Andrew, but when you see hundreds, if not thousands of people with their arms raised up worshiping God, that's a pretty powerful sign. Mm. 
a sign that that God exists, a sign that God is real. And so, ultimately, as he responds to Moses' concern with, be assured, trust, trust that I will give you the sign. Trust, of course, is the most concrete act in virtue of faith. Uh, as I give you that sign, I want you to understand there's going to be another sign. Mm. Now, within that, I think, Andrew, is a very important point that God is saying in the end, this isn't about you. Right? This isn't about you. This isn't about the one who is being sent as it is about the sender. Mm. Right? Uh, it, it's, it's God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the call. And here, there are numerous examples. But just look at the 12. Right? Look at the 12. The 12 suggests at the very least that God does not call the qualified mm-hmm but qualifies the call. And to those who would assume qualifications, well, who was the most qualified? Judas, right? There's a a fun little letter here, Andrew, uh, that I've shared in the past, but it's been quite some time, so I thought we could share it again, and it really hammers home this point that we're talking about now. And this letter is to Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafter Shop Nazareth. It is from the uh, Jordan Management Consultants uh, Jerusalem, The subject of this letter is a staff aptitude test uh, written in roughly 30 AD. Mm. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also have arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capacity. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and gives in to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that we think would tend to undermine team morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both register a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of your candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contact in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and quite innovative. We highly recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. (laughs) (laughs) Looking at the way that Moses asks questions, it really brought to my mind... Peter and the way Peter would ask questions and almost that he asks the mm. questions in such a way that he, he could only give him one answer. So he mm. says, is, is that you, Lord? If it's you, Lord, call me out onto the waters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Moses is saying, who is this? Yeah. Who, who yeah. am I? And then he says, suppose that I go do this. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. says, and I go, I go say to the Israelites, the God of your father has sent me. 
and then and they say, "What's your name? What should I tell them?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he he's already putting it in in this question. He's trying to pre qualify himself to go do what God's told him to do. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just it's it's our humanity. That's it, Andrew. You know, earlier I was talking about the freedom to have that dialogue. Well, yeah, in some cases within that freedom, I think we tend to manipulate. And so we have to be careful because, yeah, we do this all the time. Mm-hmm. We don't like to go onto the water. Mm-hmm. We don't like to be stretched. We don't like to have to trust. Mm-hmm. We want every assurance that anything and everything that we do is going to work out just as we planned. But mm-hmm. faith's testimony is, well, quite simply the opposite. I am going to send you into a place you do not know. Mm. I am going to ask you to do things that you've never done before. I'm going to give you no assurances other than your trust in me. Mm. And in the end, this is going to be the great sign. Something we should highlight, which of course is a credit to Moses, is that he went. The action of arising and going is a sign in of itself. Essentially, it is to say that faithfulness precedes the sign. Faithfulness itself becomes the first sign to the subsequent physical supernatural signs, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah, no doubt you hear in that questioning that bargaining attitude. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet, even then, he still goes. But God God really only has one way to answer. (laughs) So he's thinking he's being... You know, I'll, I'll talk God out of yeah, it. Yeah, to, yeah. Maybe I'll go. Maybe I won't. Yeah. But God, because God has is true and righteous, he he can't he he can't play with words. He has to tell you this is what is going to happen. Yeah, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right. All things are absolute in God. There is not an iota of playing games in God. It is what it is. Right. And so um, that is a point well received. And I do think we should transpose this discussion into our everyday life. And I put this out to our uh, listening audience, Andrew, how do we do this? Mm. How well, do we say one thing and, and mean another thing in our, in our conversations with God? And so often, in, not only in Scripture, but in our, in our lives, God will use those things that are our weakest points, and He'll call us to take courage and go face our weaknesses as a sign and as a testimony to others. Mm. And so Moses had thought that the 40 years has gone by, everybody's forgot who I am, the Pharaoh is dead now, there's a new Pharaoh. So he's thinking he got away scot-free. Yeah, yeah. And then God says, now go back into that situation you left, and now I want you to be an example instead of being a murderer, mm. instead of you know, kill, killing an Egyptian and then thinking for 24 hours you got away with it and then realizing that the Hebrews saw what you did. Yeah, he was a murderer. And this is who God calls. We were talking before. Yeah. Paul, he was one Saul. Mm. He was the great persecutor of Christians. Mm-hmm. And this is who Jesus chooses? Why do you think Paul says, my greatest strength is, is in my greatest weakness? Yeah, and he, he was trained and, and raised up inside of that priesthood. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The, the Judaism. Yeah. I often say, Andrew, that as God writes straight with crooked lines, he chooses people, uh, the least expected person to do mm. his work, as, as a gentle reminder that it is him who was the one working. Right. <laughs> right? He gives us the grace that is ultimately necessary to do his work. Think about the one person 
who might be the least expected person to become an ambassador for Christ. The unimaginable. Think about that one person where you would say to yourself, no way. No way. It can't happen. It just can't. Well, that's who God has used in salvation history to bring about his greatest work. If you look throughout, just not a sacred scripture, but also in the last 2,000 years, uh, the great agents for evangelization, most of them are converts to the faith. This is how God works. This is the stuff of God. And I think the point you raise, Andrew, is widely important, and it should humble us. (laughs) It should humble us. And just by way of postscript to this point, for this reason, we should allow the least expected person to challenge us. Right. Right? And not think it's strange. Yeah. (laughs) We should never say, who are you to say to me? And it reminds me to not despise humble beginnings. Mm. Amen. Who who can be more humble than a lowly shepherd? Who made himself totally and entirely vulnerable on the cross. Mm. Right? The icon of salvation uh, is ultimately an image, a picture of ultimate vulnerability, ultimate humility. We're out of time here. Andrew, I don't know if you had any closing thoughts or words for our listening audience. Thank you for joining me once again this evening and your questions, observation, your observations, your probings, if you will. Um, But any uh, last thoughts? If there's time, just to remind the listeners that God... God sees the heart, and man, man might see outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And Satan will always condemn you and judge you with what's visible on the outside. Mm. You know, so it, well, Moses, Moses is going through his dialogue at the same time. He's being condemned by Satan, saying, "You're a murderer. Yeah. You're no. You're just a, a shepherd. What do you? How? How can mm. you lead? You can't lead anyone. Mm. You know. And so we have to stand up against that. And we do have to take courage, and in some ways, go fight our fears. Yeah, I like <laughs> that. That's why repentance is the beginnings of the gospel message, right? <laughs> repent and believe. A repent, metanoia, change of direction. Um, allow there to be an interior revolution, and, and great things will come from that. Thank right. you for that, that challenge. I like that, Andrew. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.